0: Welcome to Twill, The Week in Health Law, the end of times occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on April 7th, 2021. I'm Nicholas Terrier, professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. This is a special episode of Twill that introduces our new report, volume two of our COVID-19 policy playbook, titled Legal Recommendations for a Safer, More Equitable Future. Support for this report was generously provided by the De Beaumont Foundation, the American Public Health Association, and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. On this episode, you will hear from the six members of the editorial committee in the following order. Lance Gable from Wayne State University, Wendy Parmet from Northeastern University, myself, then Scott Burris from Temple University, Donald Levin from the Network for Public Health Law, and finally, Sarah DeGear from ChangeLab Solutions. Each of us will summarize one of the six parts of the report, then we'll return for a second round to highlight one or two of the recommendations the editorial committee thought
1: particularly important. Thanks, Nick. I'm going to focus on a few of the main themes that came out of part one of the report, Using Government Powers to Control the Pandemic. Uh, the chapters in this section address a wide array of issues, in some ways some of the most fundamental that we covered in the entire report. How has law and policy been applied to control COVID-19? Uh, have these legal and political interventions worked? Where have legal powers been challenged? And what are the implications of the use of government powers in the shorter and longer term? There has been a noticeable a noticeable disjunction in how government powers have been used. One result of the relatively disorganized federal response to COVID-19 by the Trump administration was that state and local governments were largely left on their own to implement COVID-19 control strategies. And that led to a very different set of outcomes and applications of these efforts. Um, And it also resulted in a convoluted, overlapping patchwork of interventions and supports. Uh, Because this was done in an ad hoc way, uh, this varied set of approaches meant that there were very different pandemic responses in different states with very different outcomes. The Biden administration has the opportunity now in the short term to implement a coordinated national strategy to respond to COVID-19. The American Rescue Plan provides uh, a start in this direction with a much-needed infusion of resources. Uh, But beyond that, uh, if we look to the report, the authors discuss a number of immediate legal steps that would help to bring COVID-19 under better control. Renewed state and local orders, for example, to uh, be applied uh, to, to implement social distancing and community mitigation strategies when necessary. Standardized data collection and Management strategies that can be employed at uh, in a consistent way around the country. Uh, bolstering social and economic supports in many different areas that where, where people need extra support, more robust guidance from CDC to have a more consistent and standardized response to various aspects of the pandemic, and also a concerted and deliberate effort to reduce racial and ethnic health disparities. In the longer term, charting the path to a safer, more equitable future requires several broad and interconnected efforts. Uh, first, clarifying the application of public health powers without curtailing them is is an important topic to address. Public health powers are quite robust, especially at the state level, but poor leadership and contentious politicization undermine their appropriate use during the pandemic in many places. Many state legislatures are now uh, taking steps to change the scope of public health powers. And they're, they're taking deliberately, so in some cases, the wrong lessons from the contentiousness that surrounded state pandemic orders. It's fine to examine whether government powers were used appropriately during the pandemic, whether they were used equitably and transparently, Uh, but state efforts to strip away public health powers and to limit democratic participation in elections are seriously misguided and problematic. These efforts need to be resisted uh, or they will undermine future public health responses. We need to also invest and modernize public health infrastructure, which has been underinvested in for many years. Uh, And we also need to continue to develop the capacity to have more robust data systems to collect, use and manage data effectively in public health, uh, which will allow for necessary undertakings like surveillance, tracking, and contact tracing with appropriate protections in place for privacy and data security and protections against discrimination and disparate impact. Uh, finally, there are two other essential themes that came up in the chapters to Section 1. First, uh, policies that provide economic, social, and legal support to people and also to institutions and businesses uh, to allow for them to comply with public health interventions and community mitigation strategies are essential. Uh, these supports are also essential for mitigating disparities in health outcomes, which leads to one additional essential theme that came out of this section, centering equity as a key priority across policies that utilize government powers. Uh, This is important and necessary to allow for equitable responses to this pandemic and the next, and also to allow us to have a better, more equitable society in the future.
2: If I could only offer one takeaway from part two of the playbook, it would be that governance, the organization and structure of governmental authorities matters. A lot. The divisions of power between le- levels and branches of government that characterize the American system of government can be a great strength, but it can also be a weakness. During the COVID 19 pandemic, we witnessed both sides of that coin. Federalism, for example, allowed states and localities to innovate and initiate badly needed responses, even as the federal government remained largely inactive during the Trump administration. But the division of responsibility between the federal government and the states and tribes also led to a fragmented and fractured response, in which states competed with one another for supplies, tried to shutter borders, and engaged in a troubling race to the bottom that continues to this day. Division of authorities also allowed federal and state leaders to evade responsibility and point to other levels of government as the cause of the problem. Traditionally, the states and tribal authorities have been the primary source for public health protection. But during a pandemic, which by its very definition cannot be confined to a single state or region, the federal government needs to be proactive. Only the federal government can provide the critical supplies and pharmaceuticals that are needed. Likewise, only the federal government can engage in deficit spending, which is needed to help individuals and businesses comply with public health orders and is critical to mitigating the inequities that pandemics magnify. And only the federal government has the wherewithal to provide the science-based guidance that states, tribes, and localities, as well as individuals and businesses need to guide their decision-making. The division of authority within states also matters. Throughout the pandemic, we have seen states preempt local orders, for example, mask mandates, in ways that contradicted public health advice and in many cases, the wishes of local residents. We also need to pay attention to how authority is divided be- within the executive branch and between the executive branch and the legislature. Throughout 2020, political interference from Trump administration officials undermined the credibility of key scientific agencies. At the state level, health officials were often bypassed or ignored by governors who exercised broad emergency powers that lacked either clear guidelines or mandates. In some cases, state legislatures even sued governors, and occasionally they won, blocking state public health orders. Moving forward, the statutory authority given to executive officials should include clearer guidelines and metrics, but it should not bluntly disable them from imposing critically needed measures during emergencies, as some state legislatures now seem bent on doing. Finally, while the structure of governance matters, so too do leadership and data. Without reliable data about the impact of a pandemic on different populations, we can't expect executive officials to initiate effective policies or safeguard equity. And without leaders who are committed to following the science and and ensuring equity, we cannot expect an effective or just response. In short, government governance is critical, but alone it is not sufficient.
0: Part three of our assessment asked the question what reforms are needed to get high quality, affordable health care to everyone during the pandemic and beyond? Now for context, COVID-19 descended on a healthcare system that was critically unprepared for such a widespread and deadly virus. Ours was a system that was already underperformed me across multiple dimensions, access, financing, delivery, and the integration of technology. It was also a system under sustained political and regulatory attack by the Trump administration, which continued to push policies intended to weaken and even destroy the Affordable Care Act, the ACA. Fragmented models of care and data flow are problematic at the best of times. In a pandemic, their recipe for the disaster we observed. However, COVID-19 found one more way to twist the knife. The pandemic's negative impacts on the economy, some temporary, many more likely permanent, led to widespread unemployment suddenly the core organizing principle of U.S. healthcare financing, employment-based health insurance, was swept away, jeopardizing access to healthcare for millions, just as the safety net predictably also underperformed. Three chapters in this part of the report directly address those issues. Many of our authors' recommendations for improvements in private and public insurance to drive improved access to affordable care were floated by the the House in 2020's Patient Protection and Affordable Care Enhancement Act, which in particular provided a roadmap for reversing the last administration's attacks on the ACA. However, the Biden administration will need to go further than reversing those prior policies even more than incentivizing the holdout states to expand Medicaid and making marketplace plans affordable for more people. Healthcare costs incurred by individuals and states create structural barriers to care, requiring major legislative reform, such as the introduction of a public option priority should also be given to designing a universal insurance coverage mechanism to ensure access to coverage during a declared public health emergency. Many of the themes addressed by our authors clearly have resonated with the Biden-Harris administration. Among the new president's early executive orders was the opening of a special enrollment period for federally facilitated individual health insurance plans. Others suggested that additional important reforms will be coming after study or administrative processes. These include public health data management and new approaches to health equity. Separately, by letter, The Biden Department of Justice notified the Supreme Court that the new administration disagreed with the arguments previously made that the ACA was unconstitutional. President Biden's first signature legislation was the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, that provided for 100% COBRA health insurance subsidies for those who had relied on employment-based insurance. It also brought about major changes to the eligibility for and the amount of subsidies, tax credits, available to purchasers of individual health insurance through the ACA marketplace, including eliminating the annual income cap and limiting the amount households pay to 8.5% of annual income. There are also temporary increases to the state-based FMAP to encourage non-expansion states such as Florida and Texas to expand Medicaid and increases in funding for mental health and substance use disorders. However, most of these ARPA provisions are time-limited while the corresponding recommendations from our authors were that they be permanent. In addition to identifying and making recommendations about these core persistent healthcare problems, COVID-19 has framed and highlighted many legal and policy flaws that have been ignored or downplayed for decades. For example, notwithstanding mental health parity legislation, federal and state governments have failed to adequately promote mental health education or strengthen the safety net to provide care and treatment. Equally, treatment of opioid use disorders must be normalized by removing the extraordinary and unnecessary limits of prescribing buprenorphine and agonists and restrictive telemedicine rules. Residents of long-term care facilities were suffering before the pandemic, and the defects of that care system have been magnified by COVID-19. As a result, stronger regulation of staffing and infection control are and enforcement are overdue. Other chapters in our assessment outside of part three intersect with these healthcare recommendations. For example, the chapter on immigration discusses extending healthcare to the entire population and is particularly critical of the public charge rule. While recommendations made in part three, such as increasing the use of telehealth, run parallel to recommendations to reduce the digital divide. Finally, building resilience against future public health emergencies, such as substance use epidemics and viral pandemics, requires a commitment to health equity. Equity depends not merely on universal access to care or fighting implicit bias in its delivery, but removing disparities in health caused by social determinants, such as education, income, and social inclusion.
3: The five chapters in the section on assuring access to medicines and medical supplies focused on processes, the rules and routines running behind the scenes so that people can get health care and vaccines from providers who have the proper protective equipment and have the treatments at hand. The FDA's regulatory actions got a lot of attention. Authors voiced concern about the emergency youth authorizations, EUAs, that were so widely used. They make sense in an emergency, but they have the potential to become a bad habit. So, for example, that PPE makers uh, might lose the incentive to pursue full approval for their masks and other products? Do EUAs get in the way of the ongoing studies necessary for full approval? Or do they complicate post-market surveillance? So many EUAs were issued to foreign producers that CDC and FDA could not keep up inspections to weed out substandard and counterfeit stuff. Overall, FDA has managed vaccine EUAs pretty well, but we would still be worried about the way political pressure produced an an EUA for hydroxychloroquine. Certainly, there the Food and Drug Administration should comprehensively assess its procedures, standards, and practices for EUAs when the dust settles from COVID-19. The use of federal market management authority and money muscle has been the driver of access to essential products overall. The federal government has plenty of power to manage markets and supply chains for medicines, vaccines, and PPE. With its purchasing alone, it has huge influence on markets, as we saw with, with the successful effort to make sure we have enough vaccines. With legal authority under emergency law and the Defense Production Act, the federal government can use contracting, grants, loans, and even mandatory rulings to make sure that the raw materials and final products go where they are needed. But the key to using this power is management capacity. To sustain a, a nimble management response to a com- in a complex market, the federal government needs to perform advanced planning, monitor domestic production capacity and global supply chains, analyze markets to assess global availability, and create sourcing plans for every key need that might arise. The feds have to accomplish have to and empowered bureaucratic staff to work out who needs to do what. I think things are looking far better on that front under the Biden administration, but time will tell. Behind the scenes, intellectual property law has a pervasive effect on research and equitable access to medical discoveries. We are now dealing with acute concerns about global equity in the vaccine market, for example. George Contreras, whose chapter in our first edition looked at a wide range of IP issues, focused this edition uh, on one big risk. In a case called Association for Molecular Pathology versus Myriad Genetics, the Supreme Court ruled that genomic sequences are not patentable, but there are now active legislative efforts to overrule that case. We are seeing in COVID-19 the incredible value of open genomic science in producing tests and treatments and vaccines rapidly. More access and less IP friction, not the reverse, is what's best for everyone on this globe. Finally, authors continue to highlight the importance of practices that promote equity instead of inequity. Most states prohibit prioritization of access to scarce resources based on factors like race or ethnicity, age, and factors related to social standing. But while this type of facially neutral framework seems ethically appealing and can be important to prevent overt form discrimination, it can also allow inequity to persist in resource allocation outcomes and even sometimes decisions. The initial challenges in implementing equitable vaccine allocation demonstrate that having well-designed, ethically thoughtful plans is not enough to achieve equitable results. Federal, state, and local officials Officials must take steps to affirmatively connect vulnerable populations with available vaccines and ultimately other medicines through more deliberate outreach.
4: Part five, what legal steps are needed to protect American workers and their families from COVID-19 and its economic side effects? The Part 5 chapters all resonated with the following message. While there were and are legal steps needed to protect workers, families, and children in response to COVID-19 and the economic harms that protection from the virus entailed, we as a society were more susceptible to illness and death from the virus as well as the economic consequences of COVID-19 because of the shape we were in when the virus hit. That is, both physically vulnerable due to comorbidities, but also also because of the pre-COVID status quo inadequate supports for workers, families, and school-age children. When we talk about and develop plans for emergency preparedness, the focus is on those extraordinary measures that need to be taken to confront the crisis. But COVID-19 has demonstrated all too clearly that the everyday protections afforded to workers and families are of foundational vital importance for protecting society from economic ills and to protect their health in times of crisis. These chapters tell the story of those gaps in protection that left us unnecessarily and significantly more vulnerable. Part 5 looked at the need for worker, job and safety protections, affordable housing, food security, broadband, and protections for vulnerable and at-risk school-age children. In every case, they tell us that with new or stronger law, these gaps can be addressed. Case in point, the chapter on housing was titled A Pandemic Meets a housing crisis. The lack of affordable, accessible housing put more tenants at risk and in need of rental assistance and protection from eviction and foreclosure, as well as from problematic housing authority policies and health risks increased for the homeless, people living in poverty without access to supportive housing. Action by Congress to amend the Affordable Credit Improvement Act to increase tax credit allocations would go a long way to increase the supply of affordable as well as supportive housing, and both Congress and the state should legislate greater protections from eviction, mortgage foreclosures, and utility shutoffs to address housing insecurity. Food insecurity existed in the U.S. prior to COVID-19 and became more acute during the pandemic, it is clear that Congress must enact significant long-term enhancements to the SNAP program. Children are reliant on schools for some of their basic needs, meals, special education, and supervision. And children on the wrong side of the digital divide could not access broadband for remote learning, in part due to anti-competitive state prohibitions on local broadband initiatives and insufficient subsidies to address affordability and increase access. Looking ahead, states should develop plans to maintain and prioritize in-person education safely during public health emergencies. President Biden's new infrastructure bill would provide greater access to broadband for the populations without it. Workers, including essential workers before and during this crisis, had insufficient job protection. Workers without paid leave and sufficient and timely unemployment benefits found themselves in dire straits financially and unable to support their families. Congress, states, and local governments should adopt and enforce paid leave to ensure comprehensive paid sick days and paid family and medical leave. And statutory reforms should update the unemployment compensation system to provide sufficient timely benefits and eliminate taxation of employment benefits. Protection for worker safety was not sufficient. Airborne infectious disease safety rules were not in place, and in general, the necessary workplace safety laws were not available and or adequately enforced. More aggressive use of the DPA was necessary to provide PPE to essential workers. To add insult to injury, employers and corporations use their leverage to push and in some cases enact liability shields to foreclose recovery for unsafe work environments. Legislation seeking these unnecessary protections should be resisted. Congress and state should enact wor- strong workplace safety laws requiring airborne infectious disease protections. OSHA and state OSHA plans should mandate necessary disease testing and public disease data reporting. These gaps in protections disproportionately affected those already in low-paying jobs and exacerbated in- inequities for women and people of color. So it's incredibly important that these proactive steps the authors recommend are also a pathway to greater equity for these groups.
5: Thanks for having me, Nick. I summarized and focused on part six of the COVID legal assessment. The pieces that I found that were the most important themes in part six, which focuses on addressing racism and health inequities, were that most historically disenfranchised communities, including Black, Indigenous, people of color, LGBTQ folks, people with disabilities, immigrants, and people who are... Are incarcerated face the greatest threats from COVID nineteen, including higher rates of job and housing loss, exposure to the virus, and ultimately death from COVID nineteen. The reasons, in large part, are because our laws, policies, and systems are inherently biased against those communities, and therefore they often don't have the resources and and supports to protect against these threats. So, as we think about the ways to assist communities in the short term, we need to ensure that first of all, we have much better demographic graphic data to truly understand the needs and gaps in services, care, and resources. Two, it's really essential that we start to remove funding exclusions and limitations from federal programs that are often leaving out large groups of our communities, such as folks who are undocumented or individuals who are incarcerated. We also need to make sure that funding is more quicker to to get out to communities and that has greater flexibility, especially to community-based organizations who have proven to be the most responsive to these communities in need. Finally, we need to ensure that our governments across local, state, and federal levels are much better coordinated in addressing the public health crisis or future crises, as well as understanding the legal protections that are in place to ensure that people are not being discriminated against. As we think about the long-term ways that we can build back stronger and more equitable, we need to have general. More inclusive policies and policies that are focused on addressing systemic racism and discrimination. COVID has demonstrated just how interconnected we are, both in terms of exposure to the virus, but also in terms of progress. Yet, we don't always experience loss or challenge in the same way. So, we need policies that consider different levels of need and to stop putting arbitrary rules on programs that essentially have the impact of saying to one group, you're more deserving than another. All of us fall on hard times and need to have assistance, so we should make sure that our safety net is robust and secure, especially for those groups or communities who have and continue to endure barriers to equality. Finally, it's important that we assess our lack of acceptance of basic facts in this country and really begin to address the lack of trust and connection among our communities. If we're not starting from the same place of understanding, we won't be able to find our way towards shared solutions. And opportunities for change. So we really need to have build up our infrastructure of facts and work with communities and other messengers to be able to get that those facts out and have them be essential to our building back that trust.
0: Now let's check back in for some specific recommendations,
1: Uh, again around the table, uh, again starting with you, Lance. There are so many great recommendations in the report, so it's hard to narrow it down to one or two to highlight. But I'd like to focus on two recommendations that, if implemented, could both improve and strengthen our public health system. The first recommendation I'd like to highlight is actually from the Improving Data Collection and Management chapter, uh, co-authored by Leah Fowler, Jessica Roberts, and our very own Nick Terry. And the chapter has a lot of great recommendations, but it it proposes an overarching, more standardized and modernized approach for data collection and management uh, during pandemic times, but more generally speaking for public health as well. Uh, They propose the creation of a modern national data information infrastructure that would establish standards for and actually manage the transparent usage of data that could inform public health decision making and interventions and help to target and minimize inequities, whether uh, really, Related to COVID-19 or other public health challenges that we face. And so I think that's a really important set of recommendations that should be prioritized going forward. A second recommendation that I wanted to highlight uh, is related to public health powers. States should review and consider how their public health powers and emergency powers were used during the COVID-19 pandemic. Some states may want to consider developing substantive standards to guide executive officials during public health emergencies and how they apply the powers for emergency Orders. however legislatures should not strip executive branch officials of their public health powers as some states are now considering this would be a travesty for public health and could seriously imperil future emergency responses and so examining public health powers but uh, sustaining them as well and ensuring that they're there for when we need them in the future if i have time to sneak in a third recommendation i would also like to highlight some of the recommendations in dawn hunter's chapter uh, about the election cycle and uh, just to highlight the importance of protecting electoral democracy uh, because maintaining and expanding voting options during times of emergency like the COVID-19 pandemic, as was done in many states during the past year, is truly integral to a healthy society.
2: The authors of part two of the playbook offered many important recommendations. Let me name just two of the less obvious ones. First, states should amend their constitutions to permit deficit spending during public health emergencies. This will enable states to respond to emergencies, to do what needs to be done to keep the population safe, and to mitigate inequities created by pandemics. This will also help free states to some extent from their dependency on congressional largesse. Second, for the federal government, Congress should appropriate money to replenish the national stockpile. And it should require executive branch officials to maintain that stockpile so that the cupboard is not bare when the next pandemic strikes.
0: Highlighting individual specific recommendations with regard to healthcare is particularly difficult because in the short and medium term, our system is going to persist with a mixture of different access and delivery methods. In other words, continued fragmentation across multiple dimensions. At a minimum, therefore, our authors recommend that various provisions of the American Rescue Plan Act and other Biden Harris initiatives should be made permanent. Additionally, a recommendation that came from multiple authors is that the pandemic created a large scale experiment in the use of telehealth. Congress and state legislatures should comprehensively remove regulatory, financial and technological barriers to the use of telehealth to deliver health, mental health care abortion, and substance use disorder treatment services.
3: Given the terrible experiences of the first year of COVID, we think that Congress and the White House should jointly convene an independent commission or task force to investigate the preparation for, the response to, and the inequities exacerbated by COVID-19. There's just so much that went wrong and so much that we need to do better the next time. That said, it's pretty clear across our chapters in the uh, access to scarce resources sources section, that Congress should definitely reaffirm and make mandatory the role of the strategic national stockpile as the primary source for supplies required during emergency surges in demand. And it should institute a long-term funding plan for assuring supplies will always be commensurate predicted needs. If I can squeeze in a third one, we also recommend that Congress fund more research into sustainable forms of personal protective equipment, including biological N95 masks designed for sterilization and reuse. BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, um, and DARPA, its Defense Department twin, could do a lot more than they have, a lot more successfully than they've been to support real innovation in the rapid production of PPE and should make sure that any innovation that they support um, is not a state secret, but part of the open science framework.
4: What are the most important recommendations for part five? That is a very difficult choice. Should workers have sufficient work safety protections or enough job security to take time off for illness or quarantine or adequate unemployment compensation when out of a job? Or should lawmakers ensure that families have food or housing security? I would start with those laws that make workers safer on the job and covered by paid sick days and family and medical leave, as well as sufficient unemployment compensation when needed. I start there on the knowledge that the enactment of laws to ensure housing and food security will take time. So step one would be to protect workers, giving them the opportunity to provide sufficient food and adequate housing for themselves and their families in the interim.
5: The top recommendations that I would flag for this report overall all of the recommendations that the editorial committee pulled together are first data I think it's really important we need to, as a nation, institute uniform, standardized data collection practices across the nation. And I would include that we need to have resources to help states and localities institute those best practices. Data is the way that we will understand the depth and the breadth of the problems, as well as opportunities. Second, I would recommend that we focus on moving towards more comprehensive approaches to issues like immigration Reform, reducing incarceration, and expanding access to health care. We're starting to see the Biden administration do some of those things, which is great. And I think we just need to take a step back and to really have a much more comprehensive and inclusive approach. And three, I would focus on ensuring that all of these policies are seeking to eliminate structural racism and discrimination, which are often embedded in our current laws and policies. So as a nation, we need to have a critical lens through which we view our future policies and their impacts in a way that seeks to redress racism and discrimination and definitely does not further it. So those would be the top recommendations that I would have. And I just wanted to say thank you so much, Nick, for having me and for the to the larger editorial committee of the COVID Legal Assessment. Um, thank you for your hard work.
0: And that was the Week in Health Law. My thanks to Lance, Wendy, Scott, Donna, and Sarah for being on the show. And also my thanks for being such wonderful colleagues to work with. A lot Last year has been challenging for everyone, but I'm so fortunate to have experienced this particular silver lining. Also, all of us thank some of the wonderful people who worked on this project, including Faith Kallick, Bethany Saxon, Liz Voiles, and Leslie Zellers. Show notes are at twill.com. Please wear a mask or two. Distance yourself, stay safe, and as soon as possible, get vaccinated.